The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Interact with each other. Sooner or later, the inevitable happens. Some sort of discord arises. Doesn't matter, married couples, family members, close friends, co-workers, neighbors, casual acquaintances, it's across the board. Eventually, some comment will be made, some action taken or not, and discord will arise. Some offense will be received or given, irritation happens, light things and also deeply grievous things. We all know this, this is, this is common stuff of life. It's everywhere, in the church too. And that's the kind of situation that we have seen the Apostle Paul to be in as we have been looking at the beginning of the book of 2 Corinthians. Last week in the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, we realized that the last time that Paul had been in Corinth, someone there had done something, we don't know exactly what, to attack and hurt him to offend him. And then the church as a whole had failed to deal with it well, had failed to confront it and correct this sin, and so then the church became complicit in the matter and was in some ways drawn away from, separated from Paul and from God who had appointed Paul as that church's apostle. And so Paul looking at that, realized he needed to confront the sin in the church and in the man himself, but not in person, in writing. He needed to do so for their good, for their joy, in fact, a major point from last week. He knew that the Corinthians, as they embrace sin, they actually are drawn away from and are walking away from God. And so what would be for good for them, for joy for them, would be to be drawn back to the Lord. And so wisely, carefully, in much love, he wrote to address the sin. And what happened? Well, we can discern from the context in today's passage, as well as the different comments in chapter 7, which we'll come to eventually, wonderfully, repentance happened. The church as a whole turned on this issue. And and aligned themselves with God's command, and they confronted the sin in the man, and then he turned also. Repentance on on this issue at both levels broke out, which was exactly the goal of Paul's writing. So now what? Well, this is going to be our focus this morning in verses 5 to 11, a challenging final step in that process, one that's critical for the the joy of the church and critical for the displaying of the truth and the power of the gospel. It's good but challenging because something in us, something that just lives in the human heart, when offended, when hurt, something in us finds it very hard to truly, genuinely, fully forgive. But that's what we're going to be looking at today verses 5 to 11. So let me read this passage here, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and then I'll draw two observations from it. 
on the subject of forgiveness. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. We are not ignorant of his designs. Second Corinthians chapter 2. Two observations. Here's the first. Sin addressed and then repented of must be met with forgiveness. Sin addressed and then repented of must be met with forgiveness. At verse 5 now, we finally begin to get a a few of the, the details of this situation, but in a very gentle and indirect way. Because by the time Paul writes this letter, the man is repentant and he doesn't want to rub it in. But he does say, carefully but clearly enough, if anyone hurt me, which he did. In fact, he caused that pain, notice the qualifiers, not to put it too severely, not to put it too absolutely, but really, not just to me, but to the church, to all of you. He attacked and hurt everyone. He brought sin into the church, drove a wedge between you and your God-given apostle and created an awkward, tempting situation in which you then walked for a time with him in that sin. This is important to realize what Paul's saying here because there are other types of sin scenarios in life. So Paul's going to talk about a process here that has a few preliminary steps that fits one scenario, but there are other scenarios. If, for instance, it had been just purely personal, maybe he would have let love cover over that sin and just quietly in his mind and heart forgive him. Or if it had been sin somewhere like out there in the world, maybe he would have said, turn the other cheek. Forgive and move on with them. Or if you've got some reasonable in your society, some way of pursuing recourse, whether it be in elections or in the courts, you know, go ahead. But those are various other scenarios and there are plenty of others. This one is in the church. And so we're going to be talking mostly focus on this one, but as you hear this, I, I, I hope that you are thinking about maybe some other scenarios in your life, and I recognize that some of those might be very challenging and difficult, tricky or painful. So I want to say, if, if you want help thinking through some particular scenario, some, some particular situation where you've been sinned against, I'd be more than happy to talk about that. But here... What we're going to see is that, like all those scenarios, they all eventually end up with the Christian, as Jesus said, called to forgive. How many times? Seventy times seven. That's the constant call on us. And in the church, 
It begins first with confronting the sin. That's in fact why Paul wrote in verse 9, to test them and see whether they would be obedient. This is not something optional. He's giving command from God in the church, you must confront that sin. I want to see if you will obey the Lord, and then, as hoped and expected, they did. The majority of the church, probably excluding the minority that does not like Paul and will not follow him, the majority of the church did act, enacted some sort of formal church discipline. It's called punishment in verse 6. I don't know what exactly, doesn't say. Probably setting him outside of the fellowship of the church as Paul already had taught them about someone else in 1 Corinthians. Probably some sort of formal church discipline like that. The church acted, and then the sinful man was broken over his sin. The punishment worked. And now the end of verse 6, really the point of the passage. Now it has to stop. Enough. Enough, he says. It has had its desired effect. Its its goal has been reached. And now verse 7, differently, notice the idea of turning here. There's, There's a turn that you, church, have to make. You must now turn to forgive and comfort. That's the main idea here. Forgiveness now. What must follow repentance is an observable, formal re-embracing of the man. As Paul begs them in verse 8 to to reaffirm their love, to put him back in the spot of a formal integration into the church, brought back in, back in good standing under the love of the community. In forgiveness, the offended party, if you you think of it like this, what's forgiveness? The offended party reckons the sin and the rift it caused as over, gone. The sinner has turned from the sin, and now the church has to turn from its stance of of being against, of setting aside, of being out. And so the church, the forgiver, has to turn from any formal sentence and also from any kind of informal ostracizing that was going on. The punishment is over because the goal has been reached. Wasn't it that all along our, our punishment or our discipline, all along the goal was to get the person to turn from sin? We weren't ever trying, when you think about this, we weren't ever trying to make them pay for their sin. That's what the cross is for. All along, the goal in punishment or discipline, whichever word you want to use there, was to bring near to the sinner a felt negative consequence, to help the person to realize something, to give them a sorrowful taste. Sin alienates. My sin separates me from God and from God's people and from the joy of communion with him. That's what my sin does. Always, that was the goal, to help the person to see that. 
always, wasn't it not, with always the hope to make, make the person turn back, to turn from sin and back to the body? The goal all along was redemptive. So one of the things we need to keep in mind as we think about forgiveness is that if I even entered into this conflict trying to exact my pound of flesh, I was off from the start. If I entered into this trying to make you hurt like you hurt me, I was wrong from the start. The goal all along was, was, was never from vengeance and never from my anger, was always redemptive and always to see the person turn back. And now wonderfully, having seen him or her turn, we turn and release the sinner from guilt and instead dispense the grace and mercy of loving comfort. We turn from shunning to embracing. As soon as I say that, I also need to say something else pretty carefully and listen closely to this. Forgiveness and reconciliation, that's the word I'll use. Other words may fit. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two close but different concepts. Here's what I mean. All that I was just saying may sound like, oh, you meant the same thing. I mean two different things here. Forgiveness is a heart attitude that shows itself by releasing the person from guilt, releasing the person from being outside, from being put away, and brings the person back in, back into good standing, accepted. We count the guilt removed and the barrier removed. Forgive. Reconciliation, though, maybe another word might help you if you think about reinstallation, reestablishing, reinstituting, returning to what was. Whichever word you use there, there's something different that may not happen in forgiveness. Here's what I mean. If the church treasurer steals $100,000 from the church, he or she gets caught, goes to jail, gets out, comes back, repents, what do we have to do? Forgive. But we found a new church treasurer. We're not going to immediately put that person back in as treasurer Maybe not ever. That's something different than forgiveness. The forgiveness had to be real. The re-establishing the person as treasurer, not. I think that's pretty logically obvious, but if you need a specific biblical example, think of this. In certain situations where specific sins are present, Jesus allows a married couple to divorce. Okay? What if the sinful person later repents? What's required? Forgiveness, even on the part of the offended spouse. Forgiveness is required, but not remarriage. And even in the process, forgiveness is required, but not the stopping of the divorce proceedings. 
You see, if Jesus said always and only you have to forgive, there would be no recourse for divorce. These two things are very close, putting things back to the way they were before, as if nothing happened. And forgiveness are close, but they are two different concepts. It's important to keep that in mind. From time to time, I have conversation with people who are confused by this and are really bothered by, by someone who will not forgive them. What do you mean? Well, she didn't take me back. He didn't give me my job back. Oh, that's different. That's different. See, here in this world, sin does sometimes have grievous consequences. Trust does get destroyed. Love does get extinguished. Sin matters. And if you wanted to be like it never happened, you shouldn't have let it happen. Forgiveness restores us. It, it brings us back from being out. It brings us back from being ostracized. It brings us back into right standing. But it cannot certainly and surely always make it as if nothing ever happened before. Paul's not teaching that here, but it's a common misunderstanding about forgiveness. Forgiveness, though, must be real, and it must involve a restoring of person to, to positive good graces without any animosity, without any grudges held, without any second-class citizen in the church forever because you once did X or Y or Z. No holding anything over someone's head. That's forgiveness. And it's required of us for our sakes, in part. A lot of us can testify to this. If you don't forgive, if you just you hold open the wound, all you do is allow it to fester and produce pain and often a bitterness that eats you up. There's great freedom in laying offense down at the feet of God the judge. And if there is any justice that still needs to be meted out, entrusting all of that to him who judges justly and just tells us, forgive. Entrust it, lay the offense, and lay any sense of remaining, ah, but there's some, something's not quite sorted out here yet. Lay that at his feet too. See, that's part of the problem often that arises in our hearts that keeps us from forgiving, a sense of that really hurt. And if she just says, I'm sorry, and I draw a line under it and move on, what I'm going to be saying is, oh, that's okay. That wasn't that big of a deal. But it was. And sorry doesn't cut it. Sorry doesn't, doesn't make it right. Sorry does not pay for that. Well, neither will remaining angry or at odds or growing bitter. That won't make it right either, and it won't pay for it either. The only thing that's actually going to pay for sin is Christ's cross or hell. And both of those are above our pay grade. We must always say, Lord, here's the offense. I lay it at your feet and entrust it to you to sort it out properly. 
And 70 times 7, what's laid in front of me is forgive. And sometimes that means again and again and again. This particular situation seemed to be rather simple and straightforward. It seems like he repented and they forgave and things moved on well. But we all can imagine situations where much grief is caused. I read a woman some time back, a woman writing about forgiveness who had been sexually abused by her father. And she became a Christian and she began to understand some of these things and she said, I see the call for me is to lay this offense at the feet of Jesus and trust him to be judge over this man and I need to forgive. And she did that and found that it didn't all go away. It kept coming back, particularly as anniversaries on the calendar came up. Kept coming back, kept coming back. What you have to do? Forgive again. And forgive again and again. And over decades, what she found was it does not make the hurt go away. It does not make it as if nothing ever happened. But there is growth in me in the letting go of the bitterness, the, the need to say that was awful. I can take all that and I can say, Jesus, deal with it as whatever's right. And as far as it's up to me, I'm going to live at peace with this man as best as I can today. And I may need to forgive him again next year. We need to forgive for ourselves. But notice that if you were to ask the passage, or ask Paul in the passage, why forgive? He would have a slightly different answer. Paul's wording in verse 7 tells us that the reason behind forgiveness is that he didn't want the sinful man to be left despondent. He didn't want him to be captured and overwhelmed by sorrow, which is remarkable. Paul cares for this man. Paul's attitude throughout all this is, is one of love for the man who hurt him. He wants his joy also. He's working on behalf of this guy, not against him, for him. He, want, he wants him not under pain of judgment. He wants him back in the state of being encouraged, back in the state of being comforted, just like the church, back in the state of joy and in love, just like he wants for all these Christians even though he was hurt by him. This is Christian maturity in action. This is Christ-like maturity in action. So we forgive for our sakes, we forgive for, for the sake of the person who's offended, but we also forgive in the end, we see like this is actually how God shows himself through us in the church and through the church to the world. This is how, if you were to watch this, 
you were to understand Paul, you were to read his mind, you'd say, that's what Christ is like. A forgiver of people who hurt him and offend him. This is necessary not just for us and not just for people, but for the, for the message, for the integrity of the message of the forgiveness of Jesus. How are we going to tell people about a God who forgives if we won't? How are we going to invite people into a community in which we say, here's how you can experience union and love and comfort and grace from Jesus. Not from us, but from him. It, it doesn't work. To put these things together, we've, we've got to say, like Paul, I forgive not just for my sake, not just for his sake, but for the Lord's sake in us, among us, and through us. Which can all be challenging. To forgive, to forgive people in love of them, to forgive for Christ, like Christ, can all be challenging. And the next point's gonna show us some help for that. But here at the first point, it's worth stopping right now and just saying, what about us? What about you? Do you have something in your life right now that God's kind of poking you? Forgiveness. For your sake, for their sake, for Christ's sake. What is it? And I realize again as I ask that, some of us are going to think, I was a little bit short with my spouse on the way to church today. And some of us are trying not to think about that thing that happened to you 10 years ago. You're really wishing I'd stop talking because that's coming to mind. And, and I, I understand how you're responding to that, but I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be funny. There's a wide range of things for which we might be being poked right now. You need to forgive that. And the complexity of all those situations, I, I can't hope to address them all equally accurately here and now. If you want to talk about that with me, or I'm sure with a number of our female counselors in our church, we've got several women who are very skilled at talking about these things. I, they would very much appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about that. But we must forgive. For some help in how, now we turn to the second point. Forgiveness blossoms when we live before Christ and mindful of the enemy. Forgiveness blossoms when we live before Christ and mindful of the enemy. Draw this from verses 10 and 11. Paul affirms that he, he supports the church's forgiveness of this man. 
In fact, he has forgiven him already, and the forgiving that he has done, he says, has been for your sake. Paul's not actually spoken with this man. They live in you know, different time zones, and there's no phone service, so he has not spoken with this man and has not received the apology that is due him. And if he kind of like stood on that right, until, until the man looks me in the eye and says, I'm sorry for doing X, Y, Z, will you forgive me? Well, then, until that happens, this is not fixed. Well, if Paul stood on that right, he would hold the wound open and withhold the joyous reunion, the unity that he wants to see happen in the church. He sets all that aside. You forgive him, I forgive him. He's good with you, he's good with me. Tell him that. I forgive for your all's sake. And forgives in the presence of Christ. Face to face with Christ, so to speak. The wording there makes us think of the face of Jesus. He's before him, conscious of him. What are you supposed to make of that? Do you picture, when you hear, before the Lord, or if you read in the NIV, in the sight of the Lord, do you picture something like a mom at the door of the bedroom with two kids that she just told one to forgive and one to apologize and one to forgive, and she's kind of instructing them, you know, say you're sorry, say I forgive you, give hugs, that kind of compelled reunion. If we don't, we're going to get in trouble. Is that what Paul means? Like, before the Lord, I know what I'm supposed to do, and, and his eye is on me. He's watching, and so I do what I'm supposed to do. I forgive. There's a, there's a better way to think about this. To exist in the presence of Christ, to be before the Lord, what Paul's doing here is he's giving us the secret as to how he can forgive this guy. And how we as a church or in our individual situations can forgive. Before the Lord. To live aware of him, seeing his face. Often when we are offended or hurt, what we see is the offender and the offense. We see, we feel the pain. And that's what we get wrapped up in. And Paul wants to say, lift up your eyes. So step back for a moment and see the Lord. He's the second person of the one triune God. Jesus, the Christ. He's the image of the invisible one, the, the one that we can see. But before he became flesh and dwelt among us, he dwelt in eternity past spirit with Father and the Holy Spirit in three in one. The one God dwelling together in joyous, glorious, loving splendor. Christ. And then came the creation. 
in all things that are anywhere, all of them were made through him and for him. And he sustains it all by his ongoing power. Right now he is again seated in heaven. He's seated there reigning and everything that happens and everything that is is sustained from moment to moment to moment to moment by his power because he wants it so. He's truly vast and truly mighty and nearly incomprehensible and yet he has revealed some of himself to us and told us and while on earth showed us some of his ways, some of his character. He's righteous and just. All that he does is righteous and just because he himself is what those words mean. When we think about God, it's important that we understand God does not do righteous things. He is righteous. He's the definition of it. Everything that is appropriate and all that is God-honoring and all that makes for full life and all that is proper for order here in the creation, Christ is that. And then he does it. He enacts it. Purely so and perfectly so. He is whole and consistent and untainted and unbiased and clean and so completely and fully good. Let your mind run. A goodness that is seen as his righteous and just character is also joined with perfectly the fullness of love and kindness and compassion. So he is perfectly rightly feeling and perfectly rightly loving and perfectly rightly sweet and good. All mixed together, all of that mixed together with the omnipotence of the God who reigns, who made everything. Mere words struggle to describe him and, and ultimately fail to describe the glory of this Christ. He is deep, like an ocean or like outer space. You can, you can see it, but you can't see the end of it and you can't see the depth of it. And this Christ then, he drew near to us and he extended to us an offer in the creation and in the scriptures and then even in the person of Jesus. He drew near and invited us each to behold the immense, the almighty, the good and to come near and to find union with him, to find fulfillment in him, to find relationship with this one who made us and for whom we were made, the only one who can satisfy us. Do you see and do you live before this Christ? Like that and like this. Who drew near and, and graciously, kindly, the, the omnipotent almighty graciously, kindly held out to us an offer. And we all, like sheep, confused and stubborn both, we all said, no, I have another plan. I myself know a better way to find life. And we turned away from him. From him. 
turned away from him and caused much offense to him. And astonishingly, given his nature and the actual reality of his love and his kindness, we didn't only cause offense, it's true also to say we grieved him and brought him pain and sorrow. We stood at the shore of an ocean of beauty and splendor and said, this is nothing, I'm out. And went our own way. And how did that Christ respond? To you when you did that. Oh, the depths of his patience and the persistence of his love. The glory of his grace and the magnitude of his mercy. He pursued us, pursued you in your rebellion and folly and died to himself, died himself on the cross to atone for it and rose and ascended and sent his spirit to hunt you down for your joy. To chase you till he caught you so he could do what? So he could forgive you. So he could forgive you. So he could forgive you. to settle the cost upon himself on his cross and to reckon it as finished and to draw a line under it and move on. You no longer cast out and alienated, but drawn near, befriended, comforted, and loved. To establish you, then to plant you in the Holy Spirit and to tamp down that soil day after day after day after day as His Spirit works in you and reminds you, displays you and reminds you all these promises from God through me are yours. All these promises that you regard as not worth your attention. In fact, they are your life. And I secured them for you. And I keep giving them. I keep giving them. I keep giving them. This is Christ. This is who he is. This is what he has done for you and what he does for you, Christian. In the presence of Christ, then, how should you respond to the one who offended you? Especially even the one who's repentant. Well, the question almost answers itself, doesn't it? I should demand that what is mine be given and I should hold a bitter grudge and make sure that they know they owe me and that they did me wrong and that there'll always be one click below me. Uh, Of course not. Of course not. Who walks out of a meeting been forgiven a lifelong debt and demands the nickel that's owed to them? Not someone who's living before this Christ. In his eyes, how he looks at you. Do you see something in his eyes as he looks at you? A twinkle sometimes, a tear sometimes, but never anger, never bitterness, 
never a hardness, because you stand in grace now and always only because of him, forgiven and granted and assured that in Christ you have all you need. Never mind what those ones took from you. How you see Christ seeing you matters immensely for how you see the one who offends you. Paul forgives in the presence of Christ. And to just underline this and be really clear about this, it is not just that he understands what he expects of me, and not only, this is true for sure, not only that, that as he looks at me and, and I, I understand his forgiveness of me, I should go and do likewise, but Paul really is living somewhere else. And the thing that I, that I hope to convince us all of is that we need to live somewhere else. Not here in the trenches with the offender. In the ocean with glory. All of life is about beholding your God. And all of our struggle is about failing to do so. Paul says, please, Christian, here and, and everywhere, I mean just everywhere, please, Christian, lift up your eyes and behold your God. And you will see then one that is vast and awesome and glorious and one who forgave you and one who sends you then into the world to walk with him, to walk like him, forgiving. This is critical, to live before Christ, remembering how he has dealt with us, seeing who he is, see the Lord. And this is particularly true, as I said, of those who are who are believers, who are, in, who are in this circle with us here, and we say, this is the church. I mean, my goodness. Who am I to stand as judge over one that Christ has forgiven? I have to forgive. See the Lord. And then lastly, be mindful of the enemy. Verse 11 ends there on an ominous note, and I was talking with somebody about this this week. We, we always need to be aware, but not too aware. It's really easy to give too much airtime to Satan, but it's also wrong to give zero airtime to a present threat. Paul kind of chucks him in at the end here, not even in a full sentence, but he mentions him. All of this that's going on here that I'm talking about, you, this guy, me, Christ, all of this that's going on is being observed and worked by an enemy who, guess what? is not working for your joy, but for your great, everlasting sorrow and pain. Which means that he seeks disunity in the church. 
and he fuels animosity, and he eggs on bitterness and entitlement in your heart, and he nurses grievances, and he agitates your ego, and he clouds your view of Christ and calls into question the promises that would give you the assurance of Jesus' goodness to you. And you can't see him, which is part of what makes him so effective. He looks like nothing. I just, I just feel agitated, and we should be aware. I might feel agitated because of my natural fallen human heart. I also might feel agitated because there's an enemy who's stirring that up. We are not ignorant of his designs. He's trying to kill us. You and us. And if he can't kill us physically, he wants to kill us spiritually. That's his design. That's his goal. And if he can't kill individuals, he can kill the group spiritually. He can ruin it if, if we let him. Let's not be ignorant of his designs. We don't want to be outwitted by him. We want to be alert. There is an enemy, and, and that's the one whom our battle is against. Not, not the flesh and blood person who offended us. There's another enemy. He seeks our sorrow and our destruction. We don't want to give him too much time, but let's not be ignorant. Maybe what you need to realize is, is as I feel that, uh, I'm allying myself with Satan. I don't want to do that. Set that aside. Lift your eyes up to Christ. And for your and all of our joy, forgive in his presence. Let me pray. Father, Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.